This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you've joined us. So Virginia's governor and attorney general both admit to wearing blackface as a joke, of course, when they were in college in the 1980s. But so far, both men have say they're going to keep their jobs. So does that mean that their explanations about youthful indiscretions, about the harmless intent of their humor, are sufficient. That's where we want to begin the conversation today, with this idea of blackface. And we want to talk about it in a historical context. Where does blackface come from? How long has it been around? Why is it offensive? And why does it persist? As always, we want to hear from you, what you think about blackface and what questions you have about its history or practice. The number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. And joining us now to talk about the history and context of blackface is Dr. David Pilgrim. He is the founder and curator of the Jim Crow Museum, a 12,000-piece collection of racist artifacts that's located at Ferris State University right here in Michigan. Dr. Pilgrim, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning. How are you? I'm great. It's, uh, I'm very glad you you were able to join us. So okay. I, I want to start with the idea of where blackface comes from. When did this start? And what was the idea behind it when it began? Well, let me say that it's tempting to look for deep psychological underpinnings to explain whites dressing in blackface, but I believe the answer is simpler, which is beginning almost from the beginning in the U.S., blackface performances were a kind of propaganda supporting uh, first slavery, then Jim, Jim Crow. Uh, in 1828, you had uh, what many people believe to be an important event, which is Thomas Rice, a white actor dressed in blackface, certainly not the first white person to dress in blackface, but uh, he performed a show uh, uh, with the stage persona Jim Crow, which uh, mocked uh, African-Americans, uh, in, in this case, an African-American, an elderly African-American male. It became popular. And uh, like so many other things, when something becomes popular, uh, you have imitators. And then in the the 1830s, you had um, sort of the development or evolution of a uh, minstrel C, which is um, an entire performance with many characters, many actors. Uh, So by the time you get to the 1830s, it's, you know, it's, I, I think uh, I think you could make the argument that is uh, it became the first distinctly or uniquely American form of mass entertainment. Uh, but to the question of you know why uh, minstrel C or dressing in blackface uh, makeup uh, existed and continues to exist because it serves a function. And and this this function of. One of the things I found I find really interesting about this is the 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 sort of overlap of this function, right? This this idea that it's somehow connected to humor, uh-huh. but that it is also absolutely connected to oppression. In other words, that there's something funny about 
the things that uh, white America de- decided at, at, from the beginning uh, were inferior about African-Americans. Can you talk about why humor was the vehicle for that? Well, I believe uh, that humor or entertainment, first of all, it's if, on the one hand, humor, on the other hand, um, a mocking people it's mocking, are, sure. are oppressing people. Those are not mutually, mutually exclusive categories. Uh, obviously, you can mock people as a form of entertainment, and that's exactly what we see. Actually, it's a, an especially pernicious way of spreading propaganda because people are laughing. Uh, I'll, I'll give you a parallel, which is in the Jim Crow Museum, we have lots of toys and games uh, where, uh, you know, their function is really racial propaganda because in order to play the game or the toy, uh, you have to, for example, adopt the stance of a black person or the behavior of a black person. I'm thinking here of a parlor game uh, from the early 1900s where one of the cards says, eat chicken uh, like, a, like a colored boy or eat watermelon like a color boy. And so the person who is playing the game or the family that is playing the game, they sort of uh, act out their prejudices. In, in a similar way, uh, blackface performances, and I, I, I consider it a performance, whether it's uh, one of the big stage productions from Christie's Minstrels in the early or mid-1850s, or whether it's uh, you know, a fraternity group today, it's still, it's still a performance. And so what, what is happening is, is the people are performing, they get whatever you get, whatever acclaim, whatever edginess, whatever uh, status that you want by acting in this way. And so they, you know, it's, uh, I don't think it's an accident that college campuses, especially fraternities and sororities, are where we find uh, much of this today. Hmm. Uh, can you talk about the widespread nature of this kind of mockery or humor? Uh, I, I think most people are familiar with the idea of white people putting black makeup on themselves to, to pretend that they're uh, black people or to make fun of black people. But it doesn't stop there. There, there. there are many iterations of this that we've seen throughout American history. Well, I would, I would start by saying that um – you know, this so-called, the, you know, the quote, I, they used to be called Negro impersonators. And so, you know, a person would get on a stage and uh, darken their skin, first only whites, and then later blacks who were denied other opportunities. Uh, and, you know, they're not just on the stage. Uh, they are adopting certain personas. And that's where part of the, the, the danger is because their performances both reflected and shaped attitudes about African Americans. And so in the, in the North, for example, you, you, I think a lot of people thought, think of this as a Southern thing only, but in the North when you had uh, blackface, quote, you know, Negro impersonators, end of quote, uh, a lot of the whites in the audience had not seen or met or had much interaction with blacks. They certainly, uh, during enslavement, had not, um, you know, some of them had not had experiences with, with, with that institution. And so the narratives were accepted as truth. And, uh, you know, I've said before that, uh, uh, and I don't want to use too harsh language on here, but it pretty much reduced African Americans to, you know, happy-go-lucky darkies 
that were on a plantation, and then later, certainly after Reconstruction, as dangerous coons who were menaces to, the, to white society. And so in both cases, they're extending narratives that were dangerous to and obstacles for African-American people. And that's why I'd say it's always been functional. Now, today, when I, when I look around, you know, I, I, would, I would argue that we, we, you know, public blackface performances are rare today. Hmm. Uh, however, whites dressing in blackface to entertain others never disappeared from private, safe spaces. What, what, uh, what, what many of us would refer to as white spaces. You know, again, college fraternities, sorority parties, places where they're not going to be challenged they're not going to be critiqued. They're not going to be condemned uh, unless, of course, it's discovered. Right, right. Uh, this is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and my guest is Dr. David Pilgrim. He's the founder and curator of the Jim Crow Museum, a 12,000-piece collection of racist artifacts that's located at Ferris State University. Uh, we're talking about blackface and the history and context of blackface. Where does this come from? Why does it persist? What does it mean? What did it mean when it started? Uh, we are uh, also talking uh, about why uh, the governor of Virginia and the attorney general of Virginia, both of whom have admitted to dressing up in blackface, uh, they say as a joke in the 1980s when they were in college, why aren't they being forced to resign? Both of them say they're going to keep their jobs. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call. Uh, what questions do you have about the history or practice of blackface? Can you remember the first time you came across a blackface antique or artifact or saw it somewhere in a film? Did you grow up in a neighborhood with a lawn jockey or in a house with a mammy figurine? How do they make you feel when you were younger versus how you think of those things now. As always, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. Uh, Let's start with uh, Michael in Detroit. Michael, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks for the show, Stephen. Sure. Sure. Uh, I'm 60 years old, and I... uh, know what blackface is and how repulsive it is, and it always has been. But I also think that uh, for someone to dress up as Michael Jackson, which is equally uh, repulsive, is not in the same category as what I consider the traditional blackface. You know, he was the most famous person in the world in the 80s, mm-hmm. and a lot of people, and it was easy to dress up as him with the glittery socks and the glove and the sunglasses. And I think a lot of people did that, not necessarily intending to be hurtful. And yeah, now maybe it's time to account for that, but I just think it's problematic to conflate that with the type of... Yeah. So Michael, in your mind then, intent plays a big role. In other words, if you're doing this as a way of maybe even honoring somebody who you who you admire, uh, you see it as distinct from the, the kind of mocking uh, blackface that, that some people indulge. I think they're both wrong, but they're both wrong in different ways. I think one is culturally insensitive and one is just plain malicious. Yeah. And uh, 
Uh, you know, there has to be a cutoff point at some point with this stuff. And I was just saying to my friends here, uh, maybe the year 2000 is the point where you say, if you've done any of these things before the year 2000, we're going to give you a pass. But if you've done them within, you know, this century, then, yeah, you're going to have to be held accountable, <laughs> whether you're just trying to, you know, dress up as Michael Jackson or not. Yeah. Uh, Michael, I really appreciate the call <clears throat> and and the thoughts there. Uh, I'm still trying to process what I think about the, that. Uh, uh, Dr. Pilgrim, talk about the distinction that Michael is drawing there. Well, a couple things come to mind. First of all, your intentions may not be cruel, uh, but you need to understand that some people will receive it as offensive. And so, you know, you if that matters to you, uh, then you probably wouldn't do it. I, I don't doubt that there are people that... Uh, dress up in uh, with black makeup or dark makeup in in a sort of misguided way to uh, impersonate or pretend to be uh, a famous black person. Um, but just understand that um, that that may not be received the way you intended. the The other thing I would suggest is is that when people put on masks, when they put on makeup. Um, you know, they generally start acting a certain way, and often that way uh, drifts into, if not begins with, uh, racist assumptions about the way uh, a particular black person or black people in general behave. Hmm. So, so even even in the the non mocking context you're saying that that just that that act of dressing up or maybe darkening your face ends up coaxing people into this kind of mocking behavior well that's just what i've seen yeah, yeah. um so uh you know like tiger woods you know when he was uh even more popular uh you would have people uh at uh halloween at a, a parties who would dress as tiger woods and so don't just think about the act of a person darkening their skin and putting on a red sweater and walking around with a club. Uh, in the course of the evening, uh, what, what typically happens is, is that the person begins to act as they perceive t- first Tiger Woods, and then it like, uh, uh, drifts into how uh, you know, a, a, a successful black male and then sometimes a not-so-successful black male would behave. Hmm. So uh, I, don't, I don't think it's as easy as, as separating those two, two forms of wearing blackface uh, masks yeah. or blackface makeup. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation and take more of your calls and comments. Liz in Southwest Detroit, Joanna in Rochester, we'll get to you. The phone lines are already full, uh, but keep trying. 313-577-1019. We'll get you into this conversation. Also, don't forget that if you have to miss today's show, you don't have to miss out on the conversation. Just go to iTunes or wherever you download podcasts. Download and subscribe to Detroit Today. Take us with you and listen when you are ready. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today on 1019. WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, 
Thanks very much for tuning in. My guest is Dr. David Pilgrim. He's the founder and curator of the Jim Crow Museum, a 12,000-piece collection of racist artifacts located at Ferris State University. Uh, we're talking about blackface and the history and context of blackface, the persistence of blackface, at least in the news lately, where we've seen the governor of Virginia and the attorney general of Virginia both admit that they dressed in blackface in the 1980s when they were in college. Uh, we want to hear from you as well. What questions do you have about the history or practice of blackface? Uh, do you think it's always offensive, no matter what the context is? Uh, do you remember things from your childhood, uh, things that you would see in your home or in stores that were uh, mocking images of black people, kind of like uh, blackface? Do you feel differently today? That about those things than you did when you were a kid. As always, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. Uh, let's go back to the phones, which are full, with uh, Liz in southwest Detroit. Liz, welcome to Detroit Today. Hello. Mm -hmm. Thanks for having me. Sure. Um, so I work for an estate sale company, and we encounter artifacts from time to time. And... Um, it's interesting because I understand when African-Americans are the ones to buy them and reclaiming those awful things for themselves. But like um, a lot of times the buyers are, are white and I, I don't know what to do and I don't want to sell them to them. It makes me super uncomfortable to process the transaction. It's, it's really strange and wow. it's something I, I haven't been, I don't know what to do with. Hmm. That's a great question, Liz. Uh, uh, thanks very much for the call as well. Uh, uh, Dr. Pilgrim, we, we do see these sort of lingering uh, artifacts, I guess, uh, many of which I'm sure are even represented in your in your collection, but that people, you know, these are things that people owned and often they come up in stores, antique stores or estate sales. Um, and and they again, they're more than just uh, blackface kinds of, of things. I mean, the whole genre of minstrel figures, uh, which which stretches into very popular figures like you know Mickey Mouse. Even um, uh, what are we to make of these? Like uh, as Liz is asking. Are we to are we to be offended when we see these things on an estate sale? If white people buy them, is that wrong? If black people buy them, is that problematic? Well, I've been buying these objects for four decades. <laughs> right, but you're putting them in a museum. It's a little I am different. Them in. <laughs> uh, and I I used to say that I thought that uh, the everyday objects, the postcards, toys, games, posters, ashtrays. Uh, and many other objects that uh, caricatured, demeaned, and um, subjugated uh, African-American people were both, um, you know, they both reflected and shaped attitudes toward black people. Uh, they were instances of everyday propaganda or propaganda in everyday life, and that they should be placed in either museums or garbage cans. And someone... Uh, said once, well, that's a very elitist view, uh, that, that only you should know what to do with this. And it's not that, that um, only I should know what to do with it. It's just I see them as 
as uh, 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 having been created either knowingly or unknowingly to support uh, the racial caste system that's popularly known as Jim Crow. And we are, we've spent years with the Civil Rights Movement uh, and other uh, uh, organizations or other movements trying to get rid of that in the U.S. Uh, so for me, the only places for them are museums or garbage cans. I do know many people who collect for who collect because they use the pieces to educate others. Some of those people are black. Uh, most of them are black, but some are white. I know people that collect to remove them from the market. Um, like uh, myself, the first piece I ever purchased, uh, I destroyed. And there are people that buy them to 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 destroy them. But there are also people that buy them because of a kind of nostalgic uh, sense that it reminds them of um, of of, a, of an America of uh, in their own lives of a time when um, when they were happy. Take something like Little Black Sambo, where for me uh, it is you know sort of residue of segregation. Uh, for others. It's uh, you know it reminds them of time spent with their families and and uh, happy times. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's uh, if you forgive the pun. That's the stable genius of the Jim Crow Museum is that we bring in people who have those differing views and we engage them. I mean it sounds corny to say this, but we believe in the triumph of dialogue. And although I am being very clear about my views this morning. Uh, in my capacity in the museum, I'm I'm less pushing my views and more uh, facilitating discussions based on where people are and getting them to listen to one another. So I have the advantage of knowing that these objects, no, no matter why they were uh, built or created, that they can be used as effective teaching tools. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, Liz, thanks very much for the call and the really incisive question there. Let's go to uh, Josh. Josh in Beverly Hills. Welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Mm-hmm. I think this conversation is, is, is very myopic. It lacks any context of history, and I think it's unhelpful. I think um, taking this governor who made a transgression to uh, his high school from his in high school 40 years ago, and holding him to a standard uh, that is an ever-increasingly and more narrow and narrow band of what is acceptable conversation in America, it lacks the perspective of time, and it lacks the perspective that every tribe, mine, yours, all of ours, have been both oppressed and oppressors. We mock, we make light, we have fun with each other, and to try to make one class of, one class of uh, racist speech, air quotes, racist speech, or a racist behavior above the rest and somehow magically uh, magic to remove that person from public discourse completely to have them pilloried in the public square is absurd there. We tolerate. And I think I want to call out the, um, uh, the, the host here. I think last week, this, this topic was discussed somewhat and he said, this is a trope. However, we tolerate whiteface openly daily and we make no we make no mention of how that may be offensive to some groups. White face. I don't think it's can you, can, white face. Josh, can like, you like Chappelle in uh, his own show? Hilarious, right. uh, hilarious, uh, funny dancing. And and um, Josh, I don't mean to cut you off, but but I do want to I do want to ask you whether whether you 
believe that the history of this country as it relates to race and racism with regard to African Americans, which starts, of course, with slavery, you don't think that's a particular or a peculiar? No, yeah, go I ahead. Racism, I don't think racism in this country or any other begins or ends with, with slavery in this country. There are more slaves in the world today than were ever trafficked to the North Atlantic slave trade. And somehow this country is stuck in this conversation. Hmm. It's absurd. So hmm. I, Okay, Josh, I, I, I appreciate the call and the comments. I obviously don't really agree with your perspective, but I really do appreciate uh, you sharing that with, with me and, and with the listeners. Uh, Dr. Pilgrim, I'll give you a chance to, to answer what he's saying. Well, I'm not even sure where to begin. Uh, I I'll, I'll, tried to keep count of some of the comments you made. So first of all, in terms of, uh, I will agree with this, I, I do not believe in writing off people. I, I do believe in reconciliation, but I also believe that in order to get to reconciliation, that there has to be some honest attempt at redemption. So if one of the points was that we should not summarily dismiss politicians, celebrities, and others for uh, actions they took either yesterday or 30 years ago, then I agree with that. Th those are things that should be done that should be looked at individually and, quite frankly, by the constituency of, of the location. Mm -hmm. So I agree with that. The, I'm, I'm uncomfortable, though, when people compare, um, you know, for example, whiteface and blackface or compare, quote, prejudice and discrimination faced by whites to, to black people, because I think that is, uh, uh, I think that's a false equivalency. I'll give you, I'll give you an example. And, I don't know how many people know that uh, in, with blackface that you had, and I document this in the most recent book I wrote, that you had um, dozens, if not hundreds of instances in the early 1900s where whites dressed in blackface and committed heinous crimes, uh, murder, rape, robbery, and where black people were then uh, lynched because the assumption was that a black person had committed the crime. Mm -hmm. um, I think that there are many instances, he, he said something about it's, uh, it's not understanding history. Uh, I, I don't want to give you a long treatise, but that itself represents a misunderstanding of the past. The past is what happens. History is what was written about it. And in terms of what actually happens, if we if we just do the history, for example, of lynchings in this country, it would be difficult to compare what whites, even though some whites were lynched, it would be difficult to compare those two sets of occurrences. In terms of whiteface or the other kind of parallels that he was making, uh, I could see how someone could see some of that uh, as uh, offensive, but it does not have the weight of enslavement and Jim Crow behind it. And I think that although there are obviously people that are fatigued with uh, talking about, with thinking about uh, the United States history of mistreatment of black people, it still doesn't make it go away. And it doesn't mean that the residue of enslavement, but especially of Jim Crow, is not still real amongst us. So I think he actually ultra... In order to make some points, he actually overmade a few points. Mm. 
again, uh, Josh, I, I do really appreciate your listening. First of all, I appreciate your calling and being honest and sharing uh, your, your point of view on this. Uh, and, and I think uh, keeping that dialogue going is, is really important. Uh, let's go to Keith in Detroit. Keith, welcome hey, to Detroit. Hey, good morning. Good morning. Hey, Thank you. you. Mm-hmm. Hey, listen, I had an experience uh, uh, in the, say, early, mid-90s. I was living in Colorado at the time and uh, had gone up to Vail, uh, Vail to go skiing. And uh, on the slopes, and uh, once a year they will have this cardboard cutout uh, championships where people will create whatever they could on the on the slopes, and they'll slide down the hill, and whoever was just the best costume wins. Well, I'm you know I'm meandering through the crowd or whatnot. There's never really a whole lot of black folks on the on the on the uh, slopes <laughs> on the slopes to begin yeah. <laughs> with. And so I meander through the crowd checking out the different types of stuff that people have made and I come across these four white guys that has built themselves a Cadillac, painted it black out of a box, and you got four to a door. Two in the front, two in the back, and they got black face on and Jerry Curl wigs. Now when I stumbled up on it, it took me back and I didn't, my, my, my feelings, everything just kind of went out awry. Mm. I didn't know what to do, I, but I stood and I looked and I studied them and they didn't really have, they had the balls, excuse me, they had the kahunas to make it, but they didn't have the kahunas to look me in my eye. And, you know, and then I, I watched those fools slide down that hill and I just, wow. it just, it just, I, I still don't know where to place it. Yeah. Because I understand the, the ugliness behind it, where uh, Keith, they were looking for humor. Yeah, Keith, I, I, that's a that's a really vivid story and example of the ways in which uh, we we continue to see people do this kind of thing and not really think about it as being uh, offensive. Uh, Doctor Pilgrim, I can think of lots of examples like that uh, now. I mean, one one of my favorite to reference. Uh, is a restaurant in Natchez, Mississippi, which is where my father is from and where I visit every so often. Uh, it's called Mammy's Cupboard, uh, uh-huh. and it uh, is sort of a, 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 a restaurant that's got on the top of it this very large, maybe 20-foot-tall Mammy figure on it. Uh, so you've got the name, you've got this figure, and everyone there seems okay with it. I mean, everyone talks about uh, the food there and how good it is. No one ever seems to bring up that this is, again, uh, uh, calling forward a history of uh, oppression and discrimination. And And I think uh, uh, Keith's story is, is similar in the sense that there's this uh, uh, purposeful or not uh, a dissociation of uh, of this kind of imagery with that history. I mean, there's an, uh, an active, I guess, attempt to say, well, it's not about that history. This is, uh, this is just, uh, you know, uh, something we're doing to be funny or, uh, or to be entertaining. Well, I think Americans like happy history. The sort of parades and barbecue and, um, you know, waving of flags, even even when the thing that led to the history was not so pleasant. Uh, we like truncated history. We don't we don't like to really understand the, the the context of history. 
And if you if you don't mind, I'm, I'm thinking a, a little bit about the earlier phone call. And what what I would say, what I'd like to add is, there are certainly some topics, some concerns, issues which are more important or should be more important for our nation and for African Americans. You know, the fact that if you line up all poor people in this country, first of all, that line is way too long. But that line is disproportionately people that are black and brown and women and red. If you line up all the people that are in our that are incarcerated in the US, once again, that line is too long. It is too black, too brown, too red, and too poor. If you do that with any number of um, what what you would would you know the uh, you know being underemployed, you know premature death, all of those things, mm-hmm. and if you look at the the daily everyday functioning in our culture, the fact that just in the normal flow of our society, uh, some groups are impacted more in those ways than others. Those things are obviously more consequential. However, the ways that we uh, express ourselves at parties in the objects we make, uh, all those things help to undergird, to support, to reflect, and to extend those, uh, those long lines that I was just talking about. So I don't think it's inconsequential that we talk about objects uh, or about blackface. Uh, And I do think it's important that we ask the question that you just did, which is, why is it that people don't see this or that they don't see it in a more critical way? Well, one of my responses would be, I think we certainly see it more critically than we did in the past. Uh, When people come into the Jim Crow Museum now, you know, there is some disgust Uh, and it's kind of a perverted measure of our progress, but the fact that more people are disgusted with blackface today are disgusted with a caricatured ashtray than they would have been in years past does represent some progress. And so I think it's important that we talk about this. Um, You know, I used to say that uh, the United States was more democratic and more egalitarian than than it has ever been, I stopped saying that about three years ago, um, not to suggest that we've gone back, but to say that there is a level of racial rhetoric in our culture now that I heard when I was growing up in uh, Alabama uh, under George Wallace, when George Wallace was governor. So that's even more reason why we should ask these questions. Okay, Dr. David Pilgrim, founder and curator of the Jim Crow Museum, uh, also vice president of diversity and inclusion at Ferris State University. Uh, Thanks very much for being here with us on Detroit Today. Thank you very much. Yes. Up next, uh, when students are violent in school, should they be suspended? There's new research conducted right here in southeast Michigan that says that approach only makes the problem worse. Stay with us on Detroit Today.